once again in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning as we continue our study of the life of David. 1 Samuel chapter 24, and I'd like for us to read verses 1 through 22. You follow, please, as I read. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. And it came to pass, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto mine enemy, or my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So, so David stayed or restrained his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried unto Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy harm. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee. But mine eye spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and kill thee not, know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of, of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord therefore be judge, and judge between me and thee, and see, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. And it came to pass, when David had finished speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, 
Will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee with good for what thou hast done unto me this day. Now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thy hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men got up unto the hold of the stronghold. As we have been studying the life of David, we have seen his rather meteoric rise to fame in Israel. It all began, of course, with the prophet Samuel coming to Bethlehem, seeking him out and anointing him with the oil of God to be the next king of Israel. Of course, he gained much fame in the eyes of the nation when he slew Goliath. But then things turned around. Saul became very jealous, insanely jealous of David. And David was forced to flee for his life, to live as a fugitive, to live as a man on the run. We saw that he fled, of all places, down to the Philistines. There with King Achish, when it became known who he was, and when the lords of the Philistines began to complain about having the very champion that had slain their champion in, in town, David escaped by feigning insanity, scratching at the door, drooling down his beard like a madman. He leaves there, he goes to the cave Adullam, a cave sort of on the boundary between Israel and the land of the Philistines. And it is there that all of those who really had no hope, those who were outcasts, those who were disenchanted, in debt, distress, dissatisfied, they came to David. About 400 at that particular point in time, and then 200 more to where David eventually has about 600 men who own him as their leader, as their captain. They have cast in their lot with David when he was at his lowest point living, as it were, in a cave and a hole in the ground, at any moment expecting to be discovered by King Saul and Saul's armies, these men come to David. Then we saw in the last chapter, the chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, how there were many remarkable deliverances of David and his men, especially in the wilderness of Ziph, the Ziphites, Men of that particular city had sent word to Saul, we know you're hunting David, and we know where he is. We can lead you right to him. Saul sent back uh, information saying, okay, when you know exactly where he is, let me know. And Saul went down with some 3,000 men. David outnumbered now five to one, hiding on one side of a huge rock. Saul and his men beginning to circle him. And just at the very moment when David and his men were encircled and in danger of being captured, Lo and behold, here comes a messenger running to Saul saying, the Philistines are attacking. And Saul must withdraw his forces and David slips out of his grass, naming that place the rock of smoothness, or we would say slippery rock. For it was at that rock that God providentially delivered his servant, David. Now today... As we go into chapter 24, we see a remarkable, a very unexpected development. Saul has brought these 3,000 men again down to hunt David in the wilderness of Injidi. Now, 
Injidi is a place down near the south end of the Dead Sea. It is about one of the most desolate places that you can possibly imagine. It is rocky, it is barren, it is desolate. Absolutely nothing can live down there except sheep and goats. They can live, I guess, anywhere, uh, anywhere there's anything to eat. And sure enough, the sheep and the goats, that's where they graze down in this very barren area. There's also a lot of caves down in that area along the west side of the Dead Sea. Some of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were hidden in some of the caves there by the village of Qumran up at the north end of the west side of the Dead Sea. It's a very rocky, barren place. We find Saul has come down there with his men, and we find that Saul enters in verse 3 into one of these caves to, as the King James puts it, cover his feet. Now, how can I put this delicately? <laughs> that means he had to go to the bathroom. All right? That's what it means. He had a, a call of nature. That is the tactful way of putting it. And, of course, when you are the uh, number one man in Israel needing to do number two, you get some privacy. Let's put it that way. How can we say this delicately? He obviously won't go in there. You know, hey, let's all go into the cave, you know. Here's a situation where the king of Israel wants to go to the bathroom and he wants to have some privacy. And lo and behold, the very cave into which he goes is the cave in which David and some of his men are hiding in the shadows. Hiding in the sides of the cave. So here comes King Saul, the enemy of David, the man who's hunting him down, the man who's trying to destroy him. You see, we've seen the amazing providence of God at the end of the last chapter, and here again is an amazing event that occurs, obviously at the direction of God. How is it that Saul picks the very cave in which David is hiding? Well, I want you to notice several things about what is related to us in this chapter. May I make several points? The first point is the danger and difficulty of trying to read the providence of God. By the providence of God, I hope you all understand what I mean. That is, God's sovereign control over all things that happen in our lives and happen to us. The providential direction of God is arranging of events and the very things that, such as this, such as Saul, choosing to go into the very cave in which David is hiding. On the one hand, we certainly affirm that God is working all things and working all things for the good of his people. He is in control of all the details of life. But the point I'm trying to make, it is a very difficult and dangerous thing to make ourselves the interpreters of God's providence. That is, to think that we know what God is doing. I'm thinking of a couple of events that occurred yesterday. The rescue of those nine miners from that cave in Pennsylvania. An amazing demonstration of God's compassion and care. You think of all the things that had to come together for that to happen. And then I thought of the deaths of those some 80-some people over in the Ukraine as that jet fighter crashed right on top of them, both of them. Events that God was sovereignly in charge of couldn't have happened if God had not allowed it. 
Now, if you have problems with that doctrine, then you need to rethink your conception of God. Because if your God is not in charge of all things, then please tell me who is. And let's quit worshiping the one we're worshiping. Let's worship this other one that's in charge. Let's go to the top. Let's not waste our time with some middle being. Uh, You know, let me talk to who's in charge. I'm simply saying that that is the God that the Scriptures reveal unto us, this God who holds all things in his hands and works all things according to his own sovereign purpose and plan. But it becomes very difficult for us to look at an event and say, aha, we see what God is doing there. I gave you several instances last Sunday of cases like Moses, cases like Saul of Tarsus, where we would have thought we understood what God was doing and how he was doing it, and we would have been all wrong. What it appeared to us at first that was the plan of God, it didn't turn out to be that at all. He was working in a completely different way than anyone would have anticipated, than anyone thought. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Notice that when Saul comes into the very cave that David and his men are hiding in, his men immediately, you know, they just see the hand of God all over this. They say, Lordy, Lordy, you know, praise God. Hallelujah, brother. God is fulfilling his promise to you. He promised that he would, he would cause you to triumph over your enemies, that he would deliver your enemies into your hands, and hallelujah, he's done exactly that. In other words, don't you understand, David, what you're supposed to do? Well, it's as plain as the word on the end of your nose, you know. How can you escape it? It's, it's obvious as the handwriting on the wall. Here is what you're supposed to do. Here is how God has determined for you to destroy your enemy. He promised that he'd do this, and look here, it has now happened. And David begins to creep, begins to crawl very carefully, very stealthily, crawls over to where Saul has laid his robe. And instead of slaying the man who is hunting him down, he instead cuts just a piece off of King Saul's robe that he has laid aside. And we learn that his heart smites him, his heart convicts him, even in the fact that he dared to cut a piece of Saul's robe. And he goes back to his men and says, no, I can't do this. I cannot lift up my hand against my master. Whether I like it or not, whether I think it's fair what's going on or not, I have to acknowledge that God has made this man my king. This is the Lord's anointed. You you can argue, well, David, you're the Lord's anointed. Don't you remember when Samuel came down to Bethlehem? You're the one who's supposed to be next. That may be, but you see here in the case of David that he will not thrust himself to the throne of Israel. He will not destroy Saul. We'll see a little later that David makes it plain that he knows that Saul's days are numbered. He says perhaps he'll die in battle. Perhaps he'll just die like men die when they get old. But I'm not going to kill him. I will not thrust myself to the forefront. For David, there is another and there is a higher consideration than simply what is going on. In the cave. Uh, Let me back up and say that you can read providence a number of ways. I was thinking of a story of a Sunday school class, and they were asking for prayer requests, and one lady lifted up her hand. She said, I have a praise 
They said, oh, what's that? I said, well, school starts next week. The other lady lifted up her hand and said, I have a prayer request. I have a problem. I said, what's that? I said, I'm a school teacher. School starts next week. <laughs> it's the same event, you see, but it means two different things to two different people. And so it is with God's providence. You have to be careful how you interpret providence. Providence can be interpreted a number of ways. The same providential event that to one man appears to be the confirmation that God is for you and that God is against you uh, can be interpreted by the other person that God is simply chastising me. doesn't mean that at all. Let us be very careful in how we try and attempt to interpret what God is doing in his sovereign purposes. There are cases where things have happened in my life that I have not known for years why it happened that way. There are other things, to be quite honest, I still don't know why it happened. I may never know. I, I, I hope I'll know when I get to glory. I'm not sure in some cases that God is even going to reveal the whole story then. There are things that happen in our lives that, we simply don't know why it happened. What I have to rest on is that there is a God in the heavens who is in control of these things. It does not help me to say, well, God didn't like, you know, bad things happened to you, and, you know, God didn't like this any more than you do, but it was out of his control, out of his hands. That is no comfort to the people of God. Not a bit. For that simply means that, well... You know, there are just things that God can't help any more than you and I can help. He's just about as helpless as we are when it comes to certain things. It is the fact that I know my God has a reason. I know it is a just reason. I know it is a good reason when these things happen in my life. Furthermore, you've got to be very careful. And there are a number of people who love nothing better than to sit around all day and interpret providence for you. They'll tell you gladly what, why, why this happened in your life. Uh, this happened because you're this, or this happened because you did, did this. May, may I remind you that Job had three friends that came and sat down with him, saw all the things that had happened to Job, and they were dead sure why these things had happened to Job, and they were dead wrong. The second point is that our God is a testing God. Our God puts us in places of testing and trial. The scriptures sometimes phrase it like this, and somebody, uh, somebody asked me not long ago, uh, just a week or so ago, about one of the places in scripture where it says God did this to see what you would do, to see if you would be obedient. There are a number of places where this testing and trying uh, nature of God is expressed in those terms. I was reading one yesterday back in Deuteronomy. God put you in the wilderness, he said to Israel, to see if you would obey him. Now may I quickly point out to you that this is what I believe is an anthropomorphism, that is, speaking of God in man-like qualities, in the sense that if the scripture is true that tells us that God knows us better than we know ourselves. You remember it talks about Jesus didn't need anybody to testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Just read Psalm 139. The Lord knows my downsitting, my uprising. He knows all about me. He knows me inside out. In fact, God knows you better than you know you. There are some of you who say, well, I'd never do anything like that. God knows better than that. <laughs> he knows what you'll do. He knows your heart. He knows what you're capable of. He knows what you will do placed in certain situations. 
That's why he can ensure that you do some things, even sinful things, without violating your free moral agency. That is, without violating the fact that you're guilty when you do it. Because he knows that all he has to do to ensure that you will do this or that is put you in a situation that demands it. So I'm not saying that God is doing this so that he can find out whether we'll be faithful or not, whether we will stand the test or not. It is simply a way of describing the fact that God tests us to demonstrate outwardly what he's doing, to demonstrate what's in us. It's sort of like putting gold, a bar of gold. It looks pure. It looks perfect. Put it in the fire. Melt it. Make it molten. And suddenly, dross, impurity, rises to the top. And if you didn't know better, you'd say, look at what that fire's doing to that gold. I mean, it's making it impure. Well, the fact is, the fire isn't doing that to the bar of gold. The fire is not putting the impurities in it. The fire is merely demonstrating, merely manifesting what is already there in the bar. So it is in the testings and tryings of God. The places that he, the fires into which he places us, brings out what is in us. It reveals for all to see and makes it clear and manifest what is inside us. There is some evidence that God in our lives is making a demonstration to the moral universe. I say that because of what happened in the book of Job. You read the first chapter of Job, and you see this little contest, as it were, between God and Satan. By the way, Satan didn't come to God and say, man, I'd sure like to get my hooks into Job. Instead, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's like sicking a mad dog on you. Have you considered my servant Job? And what's the first thing out of Satan's mouth? Does Job serve God for naught? I mean... Of course he serves you. Look what you've done for him. You've blessed him. You've made him rich. You've given him a wife and kids and a great home and a great place to live. Of course he serves you. He'd be a fool not to serve you. Just look at what you want. You see the suggestion here. Suggestion is the only reason God loves you is because of what you've done for him, because of all the blessings. So God says to Satan, okay, you can take away everything he's got. Just don't touch him. And after Satan removes everything... Every blessing that Job has brought to ruin in just a few moments. Lost his kids, lost his possessions, lost his camels, lost his flocks. Of course, Satan left his wife alive. <laughs> just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> left his wife alive, who says, curse God and die. You know, wonderful spiritual advice from her. But, but you get the idea of what's going on. I mean, it's just, it's just like the heat is being turned up and up and up. And in the midst of it all, what does Job say? The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't sin. Now Satan comes back. Oh, yeah, but if you just let me touch his body, skin for skin, a man will give all he's got, you know, to save his flesh. And God says, you can take his health, you can touch his body, you can't kill him. You can go this far and no farther. You see the sovereignty of God even over the works of Satan. But you notice that what's going on? Job didn't know any of that. That's the amazing part about the book of Job is that you and I reading the story get insight in that there is a bigger thing going on. That Job had no idea this was going on in the heavens. 
And that we begin to see that what's going on, at least one of the things, and there's a lot of things going on in the book of Job, but one of the things is, is that God is making a demonstration of the faithfulness of his servant to the moral universe. That no, Job is not just in it for what he can get out of it. No, Job is not just serving him because of all the good stuff that his God has given him. And Job says later, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God is sometimes bringing tests and trials into our lives to demonstrate that very point. That no, my people don't serve me because of my things. They serve me because of me, because of their love for me. Abraham, put to the test. You'd think in his old age, after all that Abraham had been through, he could just sort of relax and coast right on in, right? And instead, the sorest, the most severest trial that Abraham faced is as an old man, after God has fulfilled his promise, given him this wonderful son, Isaac, now God says, take that son, take him up to Mount Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. In fact, it's interesting how the scripture puts it, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Remember, Ishmael's been run out of the house. Take you, the, the only one you got. Not one of many. The only one. The one you love, Abraham. Do you see how God is phrasing this? It is the highest test of Abraham's fidelity. Take your son, your only son, the son you love. Take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. And James, in pointing out this incident in the book of James, says Abraham was justified by this act. Now, I don't believe that Abraham was justified by God before God by that act. Chapters years earlier, we read of when Abraham was justified in the sight of God, when God declared to him, look at the stars, that's how many your progeny, your descendants will be. And Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Before Isaac was ever even born, Abraham was justified before God. But what James is talking about, and James certainly knows that fact, he knows his Bible. But now Abraham has been justified before the eyes of God's creatures, before the eyes of men, before the angels, it is made apparent that Abraham is a faithful servant of Jehovah. In other words, this whole life, oh my, this life, what can we say? Well, I tell you, we can say what Solomon said. He said it's just one long, vexing, sore travail. That's it. I see some of you young people, y'all don't think that way, do you? Y'all think, man, this is great. We got all this good stuff out there for us. David said, no, man, born for trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. You just wait. Solomon looked at life. He said, it's vexation of spirit, vanity of vanity. It doesn't make sense. I look and I see what's going out and I, I see beggars riding horses, men that ought to be begging are on the horseback and I see wise men walking. Some of you folks walking while others are riding, you see. 
Some some of you folks don't have anything in the bank. People that don't deserve to have a dime in the bank, and they can't even build a bank large enough to hold their money. Do you understand what he's saying? It just doesn't seem to make sense. It's one long, sore travail and trial. One long vexation of spirit. Do you understand that what he's saying is that this life is a great big test? It is designed to reveal what's in us. To show outwardly what's going on in the heart. And the way that we act outwardly is the demonstration of what's truly going on inwardly in the heart. Well, we'll leave that. But I just wanted to point you out that this was a severe test of David. On the one hand, God had providentially placed Saul in the very cave where David and his men were hiding. But that providential occurrence then brought about a great test of David's faith. David, will you rest in God to exalt you to the throne? Or will you exalt yourself? That was the test. And then, perhaps the most interesting part here, and I was thinking about this as we were singing one of our choruses a moment ago, and I will give them a heart to know me. If you don't believe that that is absolutely essential in salvation, that God give you a heart to know Him, you consider... Saul, King Saul. We have in the closing verses of this chapter an amazing testimony to the inability of man to change himself. Jeremiah in chapter 13, verse 23 says that can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian, the black man, change the color of his skin? Doesn't matter. It's still the same principle. Neither can you decide yourself to be something different than you are. Now, we make a lot of decisions in life. But if you want to see what's got to happen, study carefully the life of Saul. Saul leaves this cave, goes on his way. David comes out of hiding and, and calls out to him, cries to him. And David demonstrates his fidelity to Saul by bowing down in the dust, showing that he's his faithful, loyal servant. He shows him the proof, the proof of his benevolent intentions towards Saul by waving that piece of robe. Saul, look at your skirt. Look at the skirt of your robe. Here's the piece. I cut it off. I could have killed you and I didn't do it. Shows him the proof of the fact that he has no evil intentions towards Saul. And he reasons with Saul, according to this ancient proverb that he quotes here, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked. You say, well, that's a no-brainer. I wish we'd just learned that. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. That's sort of an Old Testament way of putting the parable that Jesus told, that a good tree brings forth good fruit, and a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. And you say, well, everybody knows that. Oh, no, they don't. I mean, you see one of these mamas on TV, her boys just killed, you know, half a dozen people. And she said, well, he's a good boy at heart. No, he's not. He's wicked. (laughs) That's what wicked people do. They do wickedness. And so David is appealing to this well-known proverb that a wicked man, you put him in a situation that I was in in that cave, and a wicked man would have killed you. 
The fact that I didn't, the fact that I spared your life shows, reveals that I had no wicked intention in my heart. So there's this reasoning process that David is doing. And finally he says, then what hurt am I to you? I mean, how can I harm you? I'm just a dead dog. I'm just a flea. You've nothing to fear from me. I'm your loyal servant. I wouldn't harm you. I won't hurt you. You see, Saul was being fed all this information, apparently from other men. We, We read that in Psalm 35 this morning. How David is talking about the fact that these who are my enemies, they're raising these false accusations against me. Saul is being fed all this information. And David's saying, look, here's the proof. The proof of my good intentions. The proof of my fidelity and my loyalty. And notice the effect of all of this. Saul has an amazing oh, demonstration. You say, man, what repentance? What, what contrition? I mean, you look at the effect that this has on Saul. First of all, he becomes very emotional. I mean, he begins to weep and to cry, crying crocodile tears. Next, he becomes very contrite and confesses his sin. Yes, David, you're right. I'm wrong. You're more righteous than I. I'm the one who is in the wrong here. There's an understanding even in the text as you go on and read here of God's purpose in all of this. I know surely that God's going to put you on the throne. And when that day comes, swear to me that you won't wipe out my family. Let's think about all of this. And you say, well, boy, that sounds like real repentance to me. I mean, he's emotional, weeping, he's uh, confessing his fault and his sin, He's, he's... Bowing, to acknowledging the sovereign purpose of God in, in what's going on. I mean, surely this is repentance. You, you know what was the problem with all of this? It, it just wouldn't last. In spite of Saul's emotions being stirred, in spite of his confession of his fault, in spite of acknowledging God's sovereign hand in it all, he couldn't quit. He couldn't stop. And we end the chapter with Saul going one way and David heading to the fort. Because Saul is not about to quit hunting down David, as we will see as we continue the study. He just couldn't change himself. He couldn't bow. He couldn't be at ease. You say, well, what should he have done? Well, I look at the lives of others who were being judged. Eli is a good example. Eli, as you know, is where Samuel was raised with him in the temple. He's the one that night when Samuel heard the voice, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel kept thinking his Eli calling for him. You know, you know the story. But do you know what God was telling Samuel? The message that God had for Samuel was that Eli, he's got a couple of worthless sons, evil, wicked men. And I'm going to judge him because he's not restrained his sons, because he's honored his sons more than he's honored me. Parents, let that sink in. He honored his children more than he honored me. And I will destroy him. I'll wipe out his family. I'll wipe out his line. And Samuel, this little boy, when all is said and done, the next morning Eli says, Now tell me what God told you. And Samuel has to relate that fact to Eli. And you know what Eli says? You know what his response is? It is the Lord. Let him do as seemeth good. 
That's a little bit different attitude, isn't it, than Saul? Or, or like Job, after all of these calamities, as we mentioned a moment ago, what does he say? The Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hezekiah, in the Old Testament, after being told by the prophet Isaiah that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take you because you showed your treasures to these ambassadors from Babylon, men from Babylon are going to come and take you, your nation, into captivity and they're going to kill your sons. You know what Hezekiah replies? He says, good is the word of the Lord that he has spoken, for this evil will not happen in my day. Good is the word of the Lord. And even our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there in the middle point of his ministry in Matthew of the 11th chapter, when the crowds that had been followed him turned and went their way, what does he say? I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth. I thank thee that you have revealed these things to the babes and hidden them from the wise and prudent. Even so, for so it seemeth good in your sight. What I'm saying is, is that the righteous, even when they have evil being pronounced against them, are able to submit, are able to bow, are able to say, this is the hand of God and I can rejoice in that. I may not like what's coming, but I can rejoice that God is God and he's doing what's right. Saul simply can't do it. He can admit that he's wrong. He can acknowledge God's sovereignty as a fact. He can even get all emotionally distraught. I mean, folks, come on. I've been in the ministry some 30 years now. And I have learned one thing, that the ability to shed crocodile tears doesn't mean one thing. It doesn't mean that there's been a change of heart. There is a sorrow, you understand, that goes along with true repentance. But there is a sorrow, Paul reminds us, that is a worldly sorrow. Sorry because of the consequences of my acts. Sorry that I've been so sorry. (laughs) To simply nod your head to the fact that God is God. That's a wonderful thing, but that does not show that in your heart you're able to submit to that. My point is that... We are absolutely, absolutely dependent upon God changing our heart. It is not even a matter of the will. Saul, at this moment, is willing. He's willing to spare David. He just can't keep on that way. We, we're being told in our day and time that, you know, men's will is, is the major thing, that you can decide to go whichever way you want. You can literally decide your way into the kingdom of God. We have a whole evangelistic schemes built upon that premise. The whole idea of the Crusades and mass evangelism are built around that idea that a man can decide himself to become a Christian. He can will himself. He can surely choose or make a decision. Now, I'm not against making decisions or willing or choosing, you understand. I'm simply saying we've got to go to a level deeper than that. Why does a man will? Why does he decide? What is it that's moving him to make this choice? The wheel is like a rudder on a ship. And you turn the rudder one way, and the ship goes one way, and it goes the other way, and it goes that way. We admit that. The question is, whose hand's on the rudder? 
Who's controlling the wheel? Who's moving the wheel? Who's causing me to make the choices that I'm making? What we're simply saying is there's something more fundamental than the will of man. It's the nature of the man. It's the nature of the man that's got to be changed. It's the very heart of man that's got to have an operation, a heart transplant. God, as we sang, has to give us a heart to know him. The problem is, is that men temporarily, because of the circumstances, can decide that they're going to change their life. They can decide that they're going to go in a new direction. They can perhaps understand because of the difficulties they're in, because of the disasters that they've caused in the lives of others, the hurt and the shame. They can decide that I'm not going to do that anymore. But it is as the true proverb, Peter says, the dog returns to his vomit, the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. The dog at one point regurgitated, threw up, said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I regurgitated, but turn him loose. And he eats again the very thing that he once repudiated. The sow. Wash her up. Put some perfume on her. Put a nice little pink ribbon around her. Turn her loose. Right back to the mire. Temporarily. She was washed. Temporarily clean. And you say, well, what's wrong? The dog still has the nature of a dog. The sow still has the nature of a sow. And it is the nature that when all things are said and done, it is that nature that will control the direction of the will. That is precisely what is going on in King Saul's life. At this point in time, he wants to change. He believes he's wrong. He believes David's right. He's emotionally distraught. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges God's purpose. But he can't stick with it. He is unable to change the course of his life fundamentally. That God must do. That's all I'm saying. Is at the bottom of it all. That there is a work that God must do. You say, well you don't believe I have to make a decision. Oh no, I believe you have to make a decision. You don't believe I have to make a choice. Oh, you've got to make a big choice. You don't believe I have to be willing. My friend, you've got to be willing. You've got to be so willing that you'll part with life itself to gain life in Christ. It is not that you become passive. It's not that you sit back and simply say, if I'm going to be saved, it'll fall in my lap. No, you must be willing. You must be desperately willing. My friend, the only way that's going to happen is for God to do a work of grace in your heart. God to give you a heart to know Him, to know His Son, to see the glory of Jesus Christ, to see in the face of Jesus a worth, a value, a beauty, that in comparison the beauty, the worth, the value of this world as we seem grows strangely dim, that I'll part with everything if I may have Christ. And it's not just a flash in the pan. It's not just a shooting star flashing for a moment through the night sky. It is a lasting change. It continues because it is the work of God, and what God does is forever.
King Saul. Such a sad, sad case. He knows better. Knows he's wrong. But he can't change. Some of you may be in the same boat. You know you're outside of God, outside of His kingdom, outside of Christ. You know you're not where you want to be. You know that it's wrong. Wrong to be doing what you're doing. Wrong to be loving what you're loving. Wrong to be engulfed by this world, by its pleasures, by its sins, by its iniquity. You know it's wrong. You know that you ought to have a heart that is on fire for the things of God. You know it. And sometimes, maybe like at times like this, when these things are being pressed upon you, perhaps a tear even comes to your eye. Perhaps you will even confess it. And then you leave. And you get back out in the world. And nothing's different. Nothing changes. My friend, salvation is more than that. Salvation is God translating us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Salvation is God taking a heart of stone, a heart that's hard towards God, and giving us a heart of flesh, a heart on which is written the very will of our God, a spirit within us that calls us to honor Him and obey Him, to do as He commands. Do not be deceived. Wickedness. The ancients knew this. Wickedness springs, arises from the heart of the wicked. Evil fruit, and I don't mean to imply that Christians can't do some awfully evil things, but evil fruit in the tenor of our ways indicates nothing less than an evil heart. And to get good fruit from the tree, you're going to have to make the tree good. And who can change the nature of a tree? Who can change the heart of man? Only one person I know of. The God in the heavens is able to do a heart transplant. To give me a heart to love the things that I once hated and to hate the things that I once loved. May God be pleased to visit us. Oh, may he make, oh, you say, well, I just, uh, then there's nothing I can do. No, you can go bang on his door. If I knew there's a doctor, only one doctor in town, I've got a heart problem, and there's only one doctor in this place that can do anything for me, what is to prevent me to go bang on his door day and night? You say, well, it's a big, expensive operation. You're a poor man. You don't have any money. What's to prevent me to go bang on his back door and say, take me on as a charity case? You understand, there is something to do. You can cry to the God of heaven. You can turn to the one who has the power to change your heart. You can plead with him to give you that new heart. There is something you can do. You can cast yourself on his mercy. You can throw yourself on his grace. And trust him. 
Come. Come to Christ. You that labor, you'll find rest. Let's pray. Father, help us in our inability, in our desperate state. Lord, open our eyes to see there is but one hope for helpless sinners. Only one who can do helpless sinners good, and that is your Son. Show us, Father, that he is the one and the only one who can save us from sin. Lord, not just from its penalty, but from its practice, from its power over us. Lord, we acknowledge that while we are in this life, we are prone to sin, even as saints. That we fall short of your law, we fall short of your will, we, we fall into sin on a daily basis. We acknowledge that, and yet, Father... There is something within us that we long never to sin again. To be as holy as a saved sinner can be. Lord, we plead with you. Visit us. If we are outside of Christ, make us to know it. Make us to feel it. Make us to confess it. But Lord, more so, let us not leave. Let us not leave your presence. If we do not have that new heart to love you to obey you, to trust you. Lord, we see Saul did so much, but he never could trust you. He never could rest in you. Lord, bring us into a place of rest. And do it for the sake of Jesus, your Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.